Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Breaking Down Bad Books, a podcast analysing trashy bestsellers from a literary perspective, and today we're looking at chapters 52, 53, 54, 55 of The Da Vinci Code. So where we left off, Vern did a dirty double cross and tried to steal the box with the cryptex in it, and then they miraculously, through an act of God, escaped him, drove off with the cryptex, and now Robert's like, what are we going to do? We should go talk to T-Bing. And so he's trying to convince Sophie that it's a great idea to go and visit the house of this guy who's obsessed with the Holy Grail, who's clearly the villain. And so we pick up at chapter 52. We're heading towards T-Bing's chateau, which is apparently a big fucking deal. It's a 185-acre estate. It's in the castle district, if you'll remember. And it was designed, we get, we get the full backstory on a chateau, like, do we care? But it was designed in 1668 for the Count of Offler. And it was one of Paris's most significant historical chateaux. Why some old codger living in it then? And yes, uh, it's got two lakes. That's important to know. Uh, and they were designed by someone as well. Uh, who gives a fuck? Um, the estate fondly had become known as Le Petit Versailles. I, fondly known by whom? Dan Brown, whom are you referring to? Fondly known as La Petite Versailles. Who's wandering around town saying, oh, look over there, that's La Petite Versailles. Are there trade magazines just talking about the different chateaus in the Versailles region, in the, in the castle region? Oh, don't get me started on Dan Brown just dropping in colloquial knowledge like it exists. Fucking Dan Brown. So Langdon pulls the armoured truck up to the gate of La Petite Versailles and the sign on the gate was in English, private property, no trespassing. As if to proclaim his home a British isle unto itself, T-Bing had not only posted his signs in English, but he had installed the gate's intercom entry system on the right-hand side of the truck, the passenger side everywhere in Europe except England. Okay, asshole. What a fucking asshole. Like, first of all, you're in France, speak French at least in your signage. You know, if you say no trespassing private property to people who don't speak English, they're not gonna understand and they're gonna trespass anyway because they've not been warned not to in their own tongue. And so then second of all, why are you putting the intercom on the wrong side of the driveway just to make a point about driving on the wrong side of the road? What a fucking hassle for everyone visiting. What a hassle for you. Do you have an English car? Maybe he's imported his own car to drive around France, but, I do believe it would be quite the hassle for 
everybody involved. And Sophie, she's perplexed. She says, what if someone arrives without a passenger? And Langdon, he says, don't ask. Well, I, what do you mean don't ask? It's quite a simple question. They'd have to just get out of the car and wander around or wind the window down and like really lean out of the window of the passenger side. I don't know why it's a don't ask. And Langdon says he prefers things the way they are at home. Okay, then go home then. I know you're living in Paris because you heard that the grail was somewhere nearby and you're just going to jaunt around to all the different churches at your own leisure. But maybe you can just do weekend trips if it's that much of a fucking hassle to live in a different country. You know, just cross the channel every now and then, bud. If you, if you can't even adapt to driving on a different side of the road, maybe you don't deserve to travel. I hate this guy. This stupid teabing. Ugh. And like, if he wasn't already obvious as the villain already, wouldn't, wouldn't this signpost that this person's not a genuine, carefree cat of a character? No, this is signposting to me that he's a psycho, sociopath, grail obsessed, nut job who will stop at nothing. I can't think of a more unpleasant character. So Sophie's in the passenger seat. And so she goes, Robert, you better do the talking. And she rolls down the window. And so then he leans out over her to press the intercom button. Like, why? Surely she could just press the button and you could just project your voice across the seat, out the window to the intercom. I don't see why you have to be leaning over her. I mean, you could also get out, walk around if that's more convenient. Um, But he's leaning over her, which I just think is super fucking creepy. And then it gets creepier because it says, as he did, an alluring whiff of Sophie's perfume filled his nostrils and he realized how close they were. Like, okay, stop sniffing her, you creep. Also, why does it take a whiff of perfume to realize how close you are to someone when you're leaning over them to get out of the passenger window? Like, of course you're close to them. You're on top of her. And then he's waiting there awkwardly, waiting for someone to answer the intercom. Is she being crushed to death? Like, get off her, Robert, get off her. And then finally, someone in an irritated French accent says, Chateau Villette, who is calling? Oh, so they didn't say La Petite Versailles. That's interesting. And he goes, it's Robert Langdon. I'm a friend. And he goes, yeah, he's asleep. My master's asleep. What the hell do you want? And Robert says, it's a private matter. One of great interest to him. And he's like, I don't care. Ask in the morning if it's that important. And then Langdon's shifting his weight as he says, it's quite important. Shifting his weight, poor Sophie's getting crushed. Stop wriggling around while you're leaning over the top of her. And so the cranky French dude, he says, look, Sir Lee's asleep. If you're really a friend, you'll be aware that he's in poor health and he needs his fucking rest. And so then Dan Brown tells us that T-Bing had suffered from polio as a child and now he wore leg braces and walked with crutches. But Langdon had found him such a lively and colourful man on his last visit that it hardly seemed an infirmity. Okay, he can still have a really bright disposition and a big boastful personality, but that doesn't mean that he's not in crutches. I don't understand what Dan Brown's trying to tell us there. And so then Robert's like, okay, look, cranky French dude, we've got some information on the grail. See if that'll wake him up. And the French guy's like, ugh, fine. And so then a minute later, T-Bing's at the door and it says a full minute passed. And you might be thinking like, oh, wow, he got up pretty quick to answer the intercom. Yeah, because he's the villain of the fucking book and he's been up this whole night. He wasn't asleep. He's the teacher. He's masterminding in the background. He's well aware what's going on. But he's like, 
huh, what, what's going on? He's like, I just woke up. He says, my good man, I dare say you are still on Harvard standard time. Okay. I don't know if that's what the uh, official time zone is called. Um, But then Langdon grinned, recognizing the thick British accent. Of course you're going to fucking recognize it. You're at his house. You know who he is. You've met him before. You wanted to come and meet T-Bing. And so when you hear a voice, you're like, oh, I recognize that. That's T-Bing. Who else would it be? And then T-Bing in that recognizable accent says, my manservant tells me that not only are you in Paris, but you speak of the grail. Manservant? Villain. Only a villain would refer to their staff as manservant. And so then Robert's like, all right, well, um, open the gate then. He says, any chance you'd open the gate for an old friend? And he says, those who seek the truth are more than friends. They are brothers. Oh, brother. I'm rolling my eyes. And so is Langdon. It says Langdon rolled his eyes at Sophie. Although I thought his like butt was in her face. I don't know how he's rolling his eyes at her to communicate with her through eye contact. I thought he was on top of her, but okay. Must have sat back. Who cares? Um, And so Teabing says, yes. I will open the gate, but first I must confirm your heart is true. A test of your honor. You will answer three questions. Who's this guy? Fucking troll under a bridge? Now he's making him answer three questions before he lets him into the house. This is ridiculous. And the questions are bullshit. He says, your first question, shall I serve you coffee or tea? Okay, first of all, it's like 4 a.m. Maybe you shouldn't be having a caffeinated beverage that late at night. And obviously it's tea. Like, how is that a fucking hard question? He's British. You've gone on and on about how he loves Britain and he hates France because they tax him and he hates driving on the wrong side of the road and he hates French people. He hates the the language of France. He only wants to speak English. So, of course, he's going to want a fucking English cup of tea. How's that a hard question for a big test? A troll under a bridge would come up with a better question. That's, That's ridiculous. And as if it's not obvious enough, Dan Brown goes, Langdon knew Teabing's feelings about the American phenomenon of coffee. And so he goes, oh, it's tea. Uh, American phenomenon of coffee. Did the Americans create coffee? Have I been left out of the loop on the history of coffee? Apparently that's a, a purely American phenomenon. Got nothing to do with any other countries. Got nothing to do with Brazil, Colombia, India, Australia. No, none of us fuckers ever have coffee. It's just a purely American phenomenon. And Langdon's like, oh, Earl Grey, to be specific, like okay, getting extra points. The question was tea or coffee. And then the next question, question number two, is milk or sugar? So really, this is just Teabing getting the order sorted for the next round of cuppers. It's not actually a test of merit or whether or not you're a good friend. It's just like, oh, I'm just getting drink orders. Tea or coffee, milk or sugar. But Langdon, he's fucking stumped for a second. Like, oh my, he's... Like one of the smartest people alive, apparently. And Sophie's like a renowned cryptographer. And so they're hesitating. And Sophie's like, I think it's milk. I think the British take milk. And Langdon's like, milk, okay. And then there's silence. And he goes, maybe it's sugar. And Teabing's not saying anything. And these two dummies are so fucking perplexed. And then Langdon's like, wait a minute. And then it says, Langdon now recalled the bitter beverage he had been served on his last visit and realized this question was a trick. And he says, lemon, Earl Grey with lemon. Okay, you've been here before and you've been served tea before from this guy and you still can't get the question right when first asked. You're still befuddled there being like, milk, sugar. Oh no, it's that drink that I've had here previously. 
Oh yeah, Earl Grey with lemon. Thanks, T-Bing. Also, his name's T-Bing. Of course it was gonna be tea, not coffee. Wow, do you think that's just Dan Brown creating the character name just to be so fucking obvious? Oh, I've got a character from England. Let's call him T-Bing. Is that offensive? If you're from England and you're listening in right now, please let me know if that's offensive. I'm gonna call him Coffee Bing from now on just to piss him off. And so then question number three, he goes, I must make the most grave of inquiries. In which year did a Harvard scholar last outrow an Oxford man at Henley? And Langdon's like, oh, well, this one's obvious. Yeah, okay, tea and coffee wasn't obvious, but no, okay. now he's like, oh, surely such a travesty has never occurred. And Coffee Bing says, your heart is true, my friend, you may pass. As if. None of that was necessary, Coffee Bing. Like, you're, it's the middle of the night, you've just been awoken from your slumber. Maybe tell him to get to the point. Just say, what, tell me what you need to know now before I let you in. Or be like, oh, the grail, great, come on in. I don't think you needed to get the kappa order. So that's the end of that chapter. We go to chapter 53. Oh, and we're with Vernet. I thought we'd seen the last of that little banker, but apparently not. So he's calling the depository bank of Zurich manager. And the manager's like, what the hell, dude? The police are here. Everyone's waiting for you. Where'd you go? And he's like, um, about that. I need your help. And the manager, we're in his perspective. And he's thinking, oh yeah, nah, shit. The police have surrounded the place and they're threatening to have the DCPJ captain himself show up with the warrant the banker demanded. And he's like, okay, how do you need help? And he says, can you track armored truck number three? I need to find it. And the guy's like, ah, it's downstairs, dummy. It's like in the loading dock, like where else would it be? You know what? If I'm talking to my boss and they're asking me a question, I probably wouldn't have had that reaction. I would have been like, let me check for you. Even if I did think they were asking a dumb question, I'd be like, oh, I'll get right onto it. But this manager's like, uh, the dewey, it's in the dock. And so now Vernet, he's like, yeah, it's not in the dock actually. The truck was stolen by the two individuals the police are tracking. Well, I don't think they stole it. I think Vernet's trying to cover his own ass here. And even the manager's like, uh, how'd they do that? And he goes, ah, into specifics. He's like, I don't know. They just, they just did that somehow. I don't know. And I'm not, I'm not involved in any way, shape or form. He says, we have a situation that could potentially be extremely unfortunate for the bank. Yeah. Was it not that situation prior to you letting them escape with the goods? I thought you were already in a sticky situation. And he says, I want you to activate the truck's emergency transponder. Oh, here we go. Oh, here we go. So, The short story is, there's a tracking device on every truck. Like, okay, sure. Oh, but no, we got to get the full story. Like many armored cars, oh my God. Each of the bank's trucks had been equipped with a radio controlled homing device. Yeah, okay, sure. It's just like the GPS you've already explained to me to do with the tracking dot that got shoved onto the bar of soap and thrown from the Louvre bathroom window. You've, you've covered it, Dan. You've explained the logic of GPS to me. I don't need this. <sighs> but yes, the, the radio controlled homing device could be re- activated remotely from the bank. Okay, great. Uh, they've used it once before after a hijacking. Uh-huh, uh-huh. A hijacking doesn't sound like a very secure bank, does it? Uh, okay, so, yep. Um, they transmit the coordinates to the authorities. Got it. And the manager, again giving pushback to his boss, says, uh, you're aware that if I activate the LoJack system, the transponder will simultaneously inform the authorities that we have a problem. Yeah, I think the president of the bank 
might be aware of it. The one, the, the one that's talking to you right now, asking you to do something and you're questioning it. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's aware of it. And you can tell Vern it's pissed because he has like a little pause for several seconds. And then he goes, yes, I know. Do it anyway. Truck number three, I'll hold. I need the exact location of that truck the instant you have it. Where'd he get a phone, by the way? He must've just had a mobile device on his person. Um, I mean, if Robert was smart, he would have stolen that as well with the box. But okay, I digress. And then 30 seconds later, 40 kilometers away, hidden in the undercarriage of the armored truck, a tiny transponder blinked to life. And that's the end of that little chapter. So we go to chapter 54. And now Langdon's driving the truck up from the gates to the main chateau of La Petite Versailles. And Sophie's thinking how it was a relief to be off the road. And she could think of few safer places to get their feet under them than this private gated estate owned by a good-natured foreigner. Sophie, you simple bitch. He's not good-natured. Also, it's, it's the only like safe place you can think of. You can't think of anywhere safer than this place. He'll let anyone in. If you just say you like tea over coffee, he'll let you in. So I don't think it's that secure. Walk up to the gate waving a Union Jack flag and singing Rule Britannia, he'll let you in. But no, she could think of few safer places. (laughs) Ah, so then they head up to Chateau Villette. It's three stories tall. Uh, Who gives a fuck? We're getting the description of the stonework, but I, I really don't care. Oh, and then the landscaped gardens, blah, blah, fucking blah. And he doesn't drive right to the door. He just goes to like a parking area because he doesn't want Lee, Coffee Bing, to see the wrecked armored truck. And Sophie's like, great idea. And so then she says, what do we do with the cryptex? We probably shouldn't leave it out here. If Lee sees it, he'll certainly want to know what it is. And Langdon's like, don't worry. And he takes his jacket off, wraps it around the giant box and then holds it under his arms. And she's like, that's not very subtle. And he's like, oh no, it's fine. He won't ask what's hidden under my arm. This bundle of jacket under my arm. What? Why are they carrying around the box? Ditch the box. And Langdon says, Coffee Bing never answers his own door. He prefers to make an entrance. So I'll just find somewhere to stash it before he comes down and joins us. And Sophie's like, oh, that's brilliant. And then he says, actually, I should probably warn you before you meet him, Sir Lee has a sense of humor that people often find a bit like strange. And Sophie's like, yeah, no fucking shit. He just asked you to answer questions to enter the premises. And it was the most boring question about a cup of tea. So, oh my God. Okay. So the pathway to the main entrance was hand laid with cobblestone. Great. Good to know. It curved to a door of carved oak. Okay. With a brass knocker, the size of a grapefruit. Knockers the size of a grapefruit. All right. That's a visual image I wasn't expecting. Oh, to help knock on the door. Okay. Not just someone's knockers. Okay. Um, Okay. So then the door opens before Sophie can grab the knocker. And there's the butler in a full white tie and tuxedo, which seems a bit excessive. And you can tell that he's still pissed. He is fucking ropeable because he says, so Lee will be down presently. He is dressing. He prefers not to greet visitors while wearing only a nightshirt. Being like, yeah, guys, he was asleep. And I think that has been established, Mr. Butler man, Mr. Manservant. But I would be pissed as well. I think you're in the right, but also dial back the tune. 
And he's also like, can I take your coat? And he's looking at the bunched up jacket under Langdon's arms. And he's like, no, I'm fine. And he goes, of course you are. Oh, I don't know how that's shady, but I feel like that's shady. Langdon goes, thank you. I'm fine. And he goes, of course you are. Oh, what a great response. That means nothing. And yet is very shady. Okay. So then the butler guides them through the marble foyer into the, uh, if you want a whole description of the chateau, just go to page 277. You'll find it. But for me personally, I don't want to get into it. I mean, every single thing is getting described. We're hearing about the smells. It smells of pine tobacco, tea leaves, of course, tea leaves, cooking sherry, blah, blah, blah. The butler lights a fireplace. Great. Cool. (sighs) And so then the butler leaves. He's like, okay, make yourselves at home. And Sophie's like, uh, where am I going to sit? Like (laughs) all of the seating in this room are antiques. What the hell am I going to do? And Langdon just like plops himself down anywhere. And she's like, oh, okay. I'll just sit where he sits. (sighs) What a useless bit of conflict to introduce to the book. They've already jumped through so many hurdles as our protagonist, but here we have the biggest hurdle of all. Where's Sophie gonna sit in the drawing room of La Petite Versailles? I don't know how we'll overcome this quandary. What a dilemma. And then she's looking around the room and she had the sensation that her grandfather would have loved this room. (laughs) Okay. You also hadn't seen the guy in 10 years because you saw him banging in a basement, but oh, this room reminds me of him. The dark wood paneling. Oh, she always knows what his favorite wood is. She's like, oh, the the paintings on the wall. He would have loved that. Like, yeah, he was the curator of the Louvre. Like even I could have guessed that he might enjoy your room with a few paintings hung up. And one of the paintings was by Poussin, her grandfather's second favorite painter. And she knows all of his favorite things. Was Sonia like Oprah? Just like telling everyone his favorite things every now and then? Because she seems to have a list of all of his favorite things in order. Favorite woods, favorite painters, favorite sex positions to do in dungeons. And then she sees some like little, I don't know, figurines or something of gargoyles. And then she has a little mini flashback to when she was a kid. Her grandpere took her to the top of Notre Dame. And he was like, look at these silly creatures, these gargoyles. Because she was afraid of gargoyles. And he's like, look at them, look at them. And they were gushing water out of their rain spouts because it was raining. And he says, do you hear the funny sound in their throats? They are gargling. They are not scary. They are gargling. That's why they're called gargoyles. And she's like, oh yeah, that's great. And then it says, Sophie had never again been afraid of gargoyles. Why do we need to know this? Langdon having a, a fear of confined spaces, I guess that's important characterization. You know, it comes into the plot every now and then. But Sophie was once... For a period of five weeks or so, she was afraid of gargoyles and now she's not. What a fantastic bit of backstory. I just think Dan Brown read a fact about gargoyles, a fun fact. He took the lid off of a Snapple and read a little fun fact that gargoyles are called as such because of the gargling noise when they shoot out water from a rain spout. And he wanted to pass that on. He said, this would be a nice little tidbit for everyone who reads this book for the next upcoming trivia night. They'll be thanking me. What a pointless bit of trivia. The fond memory of the gargoyles caused Sophie a pang of sadness as the harsh reality of the murder gripped her again. She's seen the dead body. I mean, she walked right up to her granddad's corpse and barely gave it a second look because she wanted to act all calm, cool, collected. But now she's like, oh, it's really hitting me that he's dead. 
Yet you saw him naked on the floor of the Louvre with satanic symbols drawn all around him. And then she's thinking about the cryptex and she's wondering if Latte Coffee Bing would have any idea how to open it. And she's like, maybe we shouldn't ask him. My granddad's final words told me to find Robert Langdon. They didn't say anything about Latte Coffee Bing. But then she's like, you know what? Robert said we needed somewhere to hide and I trust his judgment. Oh, brother. Also, I thought Fash and Colette were running checks on like all of Sophie's friends, people from the American embassy, people Robert knows. Robert and Latte Coffee Bing are like quite famously friends. If they're appearing in BBC documentaries together, he's been to his house before. Maybe they would check there. But again, the DCPJ, they're not up to the task, are they? Okay, let's move on. So, okay, so then Latte Coffee Bing arrives and he says, Sir Robert, I see you travel with a maiden, which is gross. That's so sexist. Like, stop trying to make out like it's, it's a holy grail, knight's quest, King Arthur bullshit, Lee. Okay, stop it. And so the voice had come from the top of a curled staircase that snaked up to the shadows of the second floor. And at the top of the stairs, a form moved in the shadows, only his silhouette visible. All right. I don't, I don't want to sound ableist, but he grew up with polio or something. And now he's like in crutches and like wears a back brace. And Dan Brown is just making him descend from a flight of stairs. I, I, I'm assuming maybe that because La Petite Versailles has some heritage aspect, he wasn't able to install like a little mini elevator or something, but it just seems pretty hard up to make that character do that. Sophie says, thanks for having us as he comes into the light and she can see that he wore metal leg braces and used crutches. Okay, leg braces and crutches. And so then he was coming down one stair at a time. I mean, that must've taken a while. So then Latte and Sophie are just having a chat about her accent. And he's like, wow, your English is really good. And she's like, yeah, I studied at the Royal Holloway. And he's like, oh, that explains it. I schooled just down the road at Oxford. Aren't we old bosom pals? So then he finally, after this big long conversation about where Sophie's from and how good her accent is, he gets to the bottom of the stairs. It must must have been five minutes. I don't want to sound flippant, but I... I think the poor fucker was walking down those stairs for quite a length of time. So then their host arrived at the bottom of the stairs, appearing to Sophie no more like a knight than Sir Elton John. Oh my God, I made that exact same joke last week. So portly and ruby faced, Sir Latte Coffee Bing had bushy red hair and jovial hazel eyes that seemed to twinkle as he spoke. Blah, blah, blah. He wore some clothes, blah, blah, blah. And then he says to Robert, he goes, Robert, you've lost weight. And Langdon grinned and says, and you've found some. Get out of my fucking house. Get out of my Chateau La Petite Versailles right now is what I'd say. How dare he? Robert Langdon, epitome of health. How dare he come to somebody's home unannounced, uninvited at the early hours of the morning, waltz on in here, sit on some of the antique furniture and then call the host fat? Get out. Get out. That is out fucking rageous. No, this rude piece of shit. And Latte laughs. And I don't think it's funny, but Latte laughs and heartily pats his rotund belly. And he says, touche. Oh, no, you've got a better sense of humor than I do, Latte Coffee Bing. 
you got a better sense of humour than me, that's for fucking sure. Oh, I would have kicked that cunt out. Oh, I'm riled up. That is the rudest thing I've ever heard. And you've found some. I'd slap him in the face. Okay, where were we? Um, he says to Sophie, m'lady. And then the butler comes in carrying tea. Okay, so he was getting the orders in at the driveway earlier. That's good to know. And so Latte says, this is Remy, my manservant. Little boy. And Latte's like, Remy is from Lyon, but he does do sauces quite nicely. Langdon's like, oh, okay, that's great. <laughs> Thank you for making fun of your butler in front of me, I guess. And he says, I would have thought you'd import an English staff. And he goes, good heavens, no. I would not wish a British chef on anyone except the French tax collectors. Okay, so he really does hate tax collectors. Langdon told us that last week, but I didn't quite believe it. But now I'm seeing the proof. And he goes, oh, no offense, Sophie. But, you know, my distaste for the French extends only to politics and the soccer pitch. Your government steals my money and your football squad recently humiliated us. I don't know if paying taxes is their government stealing your money. It does certainly sound like you're on a large plot of land in France in a heritage building with two lakes. I mean, yeah, you're going to pay some taxes. And because Cappuccino being, he's already got the lowdown because he's the teacher. He's like, let's cut the chase. Let's get to the point. And so he says, you guys look a bit shaken up. What's happened? And I guess it is also obvious because it's like 4am, but they're like, oh, we've had an interesting night, Lee. (laughs) Oh, wait till you hear about this one. And Flat White Bing, he's like, yeah, you mentioned the grail. Can we get to it? What, What is this about the grail? And Langdon says, Latte, we'd like to talk to you about the Priory of Sion. And he's like, oh, here we go. The Keepers. Ah, so this is about the Grail. Have you got some info for me, Robert? What you got? And Robert says, yeah, we're not too sure yet, but we thought it'd be a better idea if we could get some information from you first. Oh my God, this poor guy. Now he's got to recite everything that he's already known. I would have gone up to bed and said, here's my book, have a read. Or there's the VCR. I taped the BBC special that you were also on, Robert. And since you're too useless to regurgitate the information, just watch the video of the BBC doc while I get some shut eye upstairs and then come to me if you have any further questions. But he's like, yeah, okay, what do you want to know? And Langdon says, she doesn't know the nature of the Holy Grail. And then Pumpkin Spice Latte, he says, she doesn't know? I love how they're just referring to her as she, like she's not in the room. And Langdon's like, yeah, she doesn't. (laughs) Just didn't come up on that 30 minute car ride in the back of an armored truck or in the car ride before that or the taxi ride before that. But then Mocha Frappuccino, he says, Robert, you've brought me a virgin. Yuck, why why have you got to speak in such language? And then Langdon, he goes to Sophie. Oh, Virgin's the term that grail enthusiasts use to describe anyone who has never heard the true grail story. Okay, thanks for the definition. I think context clues would have told us as such, but I think he's just trying to cushion the blow being like, yeah, sorry about the creepiness. And so Almond Latte being, he says, Sophie, well, what do you know? And she says, well, not much, but I'd know about the Prior of Sion, the Knights Templar, the Sangreal documents, the Holy Grail, which people think is a cup, but it's not actually a cup, it's something else. And Teabing, he's like, that's all? And she's like, I, I actually thought that was a lot. And then he spins to Robert and he says, I thought you were a gentleman. You've robbed her of the climax. Blech. That is disgusting. 
Do not call her a virgin and then say that Robert's robbed her of the climax. Yuck. What a creepy old dude. And we're still thinking he's this like gentleman. Oh, he's this British scholar with a bit of a charisma about him. He's a bit of a cad. He's got a bit of a sense of humor, but he's just, you know, he's really kind hearted and he's sold of the earth and he wouldn't hurt a fly. He's the teacher. He's the mastermind behind this. It's so obvious because he's talking like a big giant creep. And so Langton starts to say, oh, I thought perhaps you and I could dot, dot, dot. And then he's like, "Mm, sounds like we're going to try and tag team her. I better cut it with that metaphor. And so then skim cap two sugars. He says to Sophie, you are a grail virgin, my dear. And trust me, you will never forget your first time. End of chapter. Disgusting. These fucking pervs. Poor Sophie. She just wants to find out who killed her granddad, surely. Actually, that hasn't really come up yet, has it? (laughs) I'm starting to think, I don't think Robert and Sophie have ever actually discussed who might have killed Sonia. They don't seem to care so much. They just want to find out what Sonia was pointing them to in regards to art history. But I don't actually think once she's ever thought, hey, who killed my granddad? Hmm. That's interesting. Let's see if they ever bring that up. Let's put a pin in that one. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So then we go to chapter 55. And this is the info dump chapter. Every six or seven chapters, we get a giant info dump chapter. And that's this one. Okay, so... Sophie starts to drink her tea and she's eating a scone. Okay. 
So Double Shot Espresso says, the holy grail. Most people ask me only where it is, and that's the question I may never answer. However, the far more relevant question is, what is the holy grail? And then Sophie sensed a rising air of academic anticipation now in both of her male companions. What? Academic anticipation? They know what he's about to say. Oh, stupid chapter, this book. This stupid book. Oh, God. So then Arabica Bing, he says, To fully understand the grail, we must first understand the Bible. How well do you know the New Testament? And Sophie's like, "Mm." she shrugs and says, not at all, really. I was raised by a man who worshipped Leonardo da Vinci. And Lee Macchiato, he says, wow, you're an enlightened soul. So then you must know that Leonardo was one of the keepers of the secret of the Holy Grail. And he hid clues in his art. And she's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Robert filled me in on that. And he says, well, what about da Vinci's views on the New Testament? And she goes, no, I have no idea. I don't even know the New Testament. She is so in the dark about the New Testament. She hasn't got a fucking clue. So flat white being points to Robert to get a book off of his shelf and then they open up the book and there's some quotes from Da Vinci. And one of them says, many have made a trade of delusions and false miracles deceiving the stupid multitude. And another one says, blinding ignorance does mislead us, O wretched mortals, open your eyes. And Sophie's like, oh my God, is he talking about the Bible? And Starbucks Bing, he's like, yeah, Leonardo's feelings about the Bible relate directly to the Holy Grail. In fact, Da Vinci painted the true grail, which I will show you momentarily, but first we must speak of the Bible. He says, everything you know about the Bible, which she doesn't know much, she just told us she knows nothing, can be summed up by the great canon Dr. Martin Percy. What the fuck's he talking about? What? Martin Percy? Who's that? And he says, the Bible did not arrive by facts from heaven. The Bible is a product of man, my dear, not of God. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Do people believe this? I don't even think radical religious people believe it fell from the clouds. Maybe they do. I don't know. And he says, man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times and it has evolved through countless translations, editions, and revisions. And she's like, yeah, okay. (laughs) Okay. She says, that's all she says. Okay. And he says, Jesus Christ was a historical figure of staggering influence. Jesus toppled kings, inspired millions, and founded new philosophies. As descendants of the line of King Solomon and King David, he possessed a rightful claim to the throne of the King of the Jews. His life was recorded by thousands of followers. More than 80 gospels were considered for the New Testament, yet only a few were chosen, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He says the fundamental irony of Christianity is that the Bible as we know it was collated by the pagan Roman emperor Constantine. And she's like, I thought he was a Christian. And he's like, nah, hardly. He was a pagan who was baptized on his deathbed. Back in his day, Rome's official religion was the sun worship cult. But with Jesus's followers rising in the years after his death, well, in the centuries after his death, Christianity became more popular. And so he thought he would unify Rome under a single religion, which would be Christianity. He could see that that one was on the rise and he wanted to back the winning horse. So what he did was he fused pagan symbols, dates, and rituals into the growing Christian tradition to create a kind of hybrid religion that was acceptable to both parties. And Langdon jumps in and he's like, that's called transmogrification. Like, okay, no one asked, Langdon. Slow your roll, cool your jets, and go and sit down on some antique furniture and just take a load off. He says, the vestiges of pagan religion and Christian symbology are undeniable. 
Egyptian sun disks became the halos of Catholic saints. Blah, blah became blah, blah. And blah, blah became blah, blah. And blah, 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 blah. And Tabing's like, oh my God, shut the fuck up. <laughs> he says, don't get a symbologist started on Christian icons. And yet you did let him ramble on for six lines, but okay, <laughs> all right. So even some pre-Christian sun god or whatever was born on December 25th. <sighs> all right, who cares? Oh, and then they go into this whole big thing. Oh, this whole big thing about how the Sabbath used to be on a Saturday, but Constantine changed it to a Sunday. Why? Because it was Sunday, a day honoring the sun. And Sophie's like, what? <laughs> Even though she's French, so she doesn't call it Sunday, but she's like, what? And she says, all of this relates to the grail. And they're like, yeah, we're getting there. We're getting there. Heaven forbid they'd be direct to the point. No, we've got to meander through all the symbology of Christianity. Ugh. And then Marcellate says, during this fusion of religions, Constantine needed to strengthen the new Christian tradition. So he held a famous gathering known as the Council of Nicaea. And it says Sophie had heard of it only insofar as it being the birthplace of the Nicene Creed. Okay, I thought you knew nothing about the New Testament. And here she is being like, oh yeah, (laughs) I've heard of that random council and the Nicene Creed, like obviously. So at this council, they voted on the date of Christmas, the date of Easter, the role of the bishops, the divinity of Jesus. And Sophie's like, what, his divinity? And Latte, he's like, "Uh, duh. Until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet a man, a mortal. He says mortal like six times. And she's like, not the son of God. And he's like, nah. And she says, hold on. You're saying Jesus's divinity was the result of a vote? And he goes, yeah. And he says, nonetheless, by endorsing Jesus as the son of God, Constantine turned Jesus into a deity, blah, 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 blah. It really goes on at length. If you're interested, just go have a read. But I'm skipping over some points. And can you blame me, guys? Can you blame me? Teabings, he's saying, it's all about power. Many scholars claim that the early church stole Jesus from his original followers, hijacking his human message, shrouding it in an impenetrable cloak of divinity and using it to expand their own power. I've written several books on the topic. Well, get one out and let her read it. And then Sophie, well, he's rambling. He's rambling on about something about what modern Christians think, blah, blah, blah. And Sophie's looking at the art book in front of her, eager to move on and see the Da Vinci painting of the Holy Grail. She's like, can we wrap this bitch up? And so cold brew Bing, he says, the twist is this, because Constantine upgraded Jesus's status almost four centuries after Jesus's death, thousands of documents already existed chronicling his life as a mortal man. So they had to rewrite the history books Okay, I don't know if that's a twist. I feel like that was already sort of prefaced to us when he said there were thousands of gospels. But basically what he's saying is Constantine commissioned and financed a new Bible, uh, which omitted all the gospels that spoke of him being a human. And then Langdon, of course, because he's so boring, he jumps in and he says, oh, and by the way, an interesting note, even though it's not interesting, he says, anyone who chose the forbidden gospels over Constantine's version was deemed a heretic. The word heretic derives from this moment in history. Okay. The Latin word hereticus means choice. Those who chose the original history of Christ were the world's first heretics. Yeah, we get it and we don't care. So then McCafe Cappuccino says, Fortunately for historians, some of the gospels survived, Dead Sea Scrolls, blah, blah, blah. Vatican tried hard to suppress the scrolls, blah, blah, blah. 
So they make a little side point that a lot of the people who are of the Christian faith don't believe that there's a fake Bible out there. They believe in the real Bible. And so they're not trying to spread misinformation at this point. That's just what they believe. And so then Langdon cuts in and is like, well, what he means is we worship the gods of our fathers. And then so Teabing says, well, what I mean is, is that almost everything our fathers taught us about Christ is false. And so they're just like back and forthing. It's like that scene from Bridesmaids where they're making the speech. And so then Latte, he opens the book and he shows her a photo of the Last Supper. And he says, I assume you recognize this fresco. And she's like, he's kidding, right? Of course I do. I may know nothing about the New Testament, but I know the Last Supper. (laughs) Sophie was staring at the most famous fresco of all time, the Last Supper, Da Vinci's legendary painting from the wall of the Santa Maria delle Grazie near Milan. Okay, all right. I, I was in Milan last month and I went and saw the Last Supper and it's not near Milan, it's in Milan. I don't, I don't know why he said near Milan. It was very well and truly in the center of Milan. So Teabing, he's like, all right, well, close your eyes and indulge me. I wouldn't have trusted that. I would have been like, oh, this little creep, he's gonna fondle me or something, but she just does it. And he says, now imagine the fresco. Imagine the Last Supper, where's Jesus sitting? And she's like, the center, obviously. And he's like, okay, well, what are he and his disciples breaking and eating at the table? And she's like, bread, they're obviously. And what drink? And she's like, wine, they're drinking wine. And he's like, okay. And how many wine glasses are on the table? And she's like, hmm, it's a trick question. And then she quotes the Bible. She's thinking through it and it says, and after dinner, Jesus took the cup of wine, sharing it with his disciples. And she's like, ah, one cup. I thought she knew nothing about the New Testament, but here she is reciting it from memory. And she's like, one cup. And he goes, nah, open your eyes. And she did. And she looks at the Last Supper and Latte, he's grinning smugly. And she's like, holy shit, there's 13 cups on the table. How about that? And also their little tiny stemless made of glass cups. And she's like, huh, that's not a chalice. That's weird. I don't think this is some sort of Mandela effect. I I don't know. Maybe it is. But she is absolutely shonked that there's not a big giant chalice on the table. And Latte, he's like, don't you think it's weird that if this is the Holy Grail, it's not pictured anywhere? And so then Sophie's like, all right, like it's late. I'm bored out of my brain. She goes, look, does this fresco tell us what the Grail really is? Like, can we cut to it? And Latte, he says, not what it is, who it is. The Holy Grail is not a thing. It is in fact a person cliffhanger. Boom, boom. So let's leave it there on that really exciting cliffhanger. Oh my God, the Holy Grail's a person. Did we not already think that? I guess we didn't. I guess we didn't. All we knew was that it's not a cup. I invite you all to go and look up the Last Supper and see if there's really any cups on the table. I mean, that's just, that's a bloody bombshell, isn't it? Uh, you can head over to the Patreon at patreon.com slash breaking down bad books to get in on the Maze Runner content. It's almost finished. Thank freaking God. What a shonky, shonky book. Oh, it's terrible. Um, and I will be covering the next Fifty Shades book after that. So I'm super excited to pick that back up again. I think I'm up to Fifty Shades Freed. And then I will be finally freed from that franchise. Unless I want to read the other shitty ones from what's a faces perspective. Spoiler alert, I don't. Anyway, I'll see you guys next week. Bye.
Send your burning thoughts, frustrations, and grievances on this latest chapter of this shitty book to breakingdownpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at podbreakingdown and Instagram at breakingdownbadbooks. You can visit www.breakingdownbadbooks.com for all the listen links, contact information, merch, and more. To support the show on Patreon and gain access to exclusive ad-free bonus episodes, visit patreon.com slash breakingdownbadbooks. Ratings and reviews on your preferred podcast platform are also a fun, free way to support the show. Breaking Down Bad Books is hosted by me, Nathan Brown, who you can follow on Instagram and Twitter at NathanBrown90. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.